Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I head to Mong Kok to chat with British former police officer Simon Roberts, who's back in Hong Kong for a few days. Simon Roberts joined the Royal Hong Kong Police in 1979 at the age of 21 and arrived here from England. He would work for the police for 22 years, both as a police officer on land and also in the Marine Police. But today, we talk about his work in Kowloon, starting off with the story of a pipe bomb in Taipo. I ran outside and the whole street was full of smoke. About anti-triad work in Mong Kok. They would aim the, the choppers or machetes at uh, the tendons, so they would go for the, the tendons in the legs and the arms. Plus an opium den. And when we arrested him, poor chap, he pulled out a battered old laminated piece of paper, sort of brown and curling at the edges, and it was a licence to smoke opium. An infamous gangster called Big Spender. He was also very famous in the media because he was photographed brandishing an AK-47 in the middle of a street in Kowloon. And finally, a murder at Kai Tak. There were a few little pink sort of small marks on his body, but nothing else. Simon Roberts has written a book about his time in the Hong Kong police called Hong Kong Beat. I was actually uh, based in the old Taipo police station. I was there as a what was called a one-pip inspector, so I was a very green. I was only shortly out of uh, police training school. So that just means one stripe on your arm? Yes, it was It was just a, basically like a, a, almost like a sub-lieutenant, a junior inspector. And you mentioned one just now, which was the, the pipe bomb incident. So what is a pipe bomb? Well, I didn't know until after <laughs> after the damn thing exploded. Basically, I was uh, sit sitting in a restaurant in Taipo, in the old Taipo town. Uh, I was off duty, I was in plain clothes, uh, but the, the staff in the restaurant knew that I was uh, as, as an inspector. And I suppose I spoke very limited amounts of Cantonese, but I did speak some. So the waiter came up to me with uh, a white face and he said, uh, Bomber. And, I, of course, I thought he was speaking in Cantonese. So I was thinking, what's bomb in Cantonese? I, I, I couldn't, I was trying desperately to think. And it took me a while to realise he was trying to tell me in English that there's been a bomb. And then, of course, he started sort of pointing, <laughs> trying to get me out of the restaurant. I ran outside and the whole street was full of smoke. Uh, I had no idea what was, what was going on. So what year is this? This would have been 1982. And I ran towards the scene and people were, were actually staggering out of an off-course betting centre in Taipo. Some of them had burns on their clothing, burns on their back, obviously suffering from smoke inhalation. I went into the jockey club, the off-course betting centre, to try and figure out what, what was going on. I actually picked a fire extinguisher off the wall. I put out the flame because obviously lots of paper because the, the, everybody was using paper betting slips so there's lots of paper on fire there's lots of chaos I put the the fire out with a fire extinguisher and I also sprayed it on some of the people that were, were suffering from the burns and tried to douse douse all the all the flames and then try to preserve the scene because obviously with with evidence it's very important to preserve the scene of the incident I had no idea what had happened and we actually had to call out the bomb disposal expert a chap called Bagri who took quite a long time to get to the scene because we're talking 1982, he was on Hong Kong Island, it was late at night, so I had to stand in the betting centre for about an hour and a half waiting for, for him to arrive. The scary thing is about that was that when he arrived, the first thing he asked me was, uh, Simon, have you checked the scene for any further bombs? And of course, I went pale 
because I hadn't. And I, the thought that there could be another unexploded bomb in the premises uh, was, was extremely uh, scary for me. But I... Um, so to establish, you're about 22 at the time? Or? Yes, about 22. <laughs> I didn't, of course, no mobile phone communication. I didn't have a beat radio because I was off duty. So um, the only thing we could we had was the old Bakelite sort of landlines that I could I could call and uh, no other no other form of communication. So some uniformed police officers arrived. They helped me to to guard the scene, and all I could do was wait until Ron Bagri arrived and then follow him through with his, with his investigations. What sort of equipment would he have been bringing along with him? Well, I think he had his own forensic kit. It would have been a lot more crude than yeah. we would have today, but he had his own forensic kit and uh, and he did the investigation at the scene and he determined that the bomb was a, a pipe bomb, which is basically explosive. It was, it was quite, fairly crude. You get the, the explosive material from fireworks and then you put it into a metal pipe and you seal the ends and you add a fuse and, uh, and that's basically what I think the perpetrator had done. And he made this crude bomb and I think he put it into one of the waste paper baskets, which of course was covered in these bedding slips. So hence when it had exploded, it wasn't a particularly powerful bomb. Nobody died. There were injuries, but nobody died. There was a lot of damage and a lot of fire damage because it set fire to the, to the betting slips. But to my knowledge, uh, nobody was ever arrested and it was assumed that it was just a, an angry punter that was uh, upset with a jockey club uh, for some reason. Your career, like like many who are in the police force, you, you're involved in different departments, uh, both out on the street, back mm. in the office, this sort of thing. But one of your areas of working is, is in anti-triad. So mm. can you talk to me about that? Yeah, so uh, basically what happened was uh, after I uh, went through the detective training school, I had a few roles. Uh, one was the, the district crime squad and then, uh, as you said, the anti-triad squad, which was here in Mong Kok dealing with uh, some very uh, interesting interesting instances you can imagine because Mong Kok really is uh, probably with one chai the two busiest police districts in the whole territory. Yes, so you would have had in Mong Kok without moving into to, you know den of iniquity and all of this sort of thing, Mong Kok though would have had issues of triads running what prostitution rackets, that sort of thing. Yes, I, I, it was uh, it was illegal gambling. Uh, prostitution. And I'm uh, sure some of those problems still exist today. I'm sure they do, and uh, and of course the the drug drug trafficking cases as well. I mean, one of the things that I wrote about in my book Hong Kong Beat was the uh, the case with the with the triads. There was quite a nasty trick uh, that they used to pull in those days, which is where they would lure a young girl into believing that she was in a relationship with so a young the, woman into a relationship with one of the younger triad members who would be quite a handsome chap specially selected uh, and it would be uh, almost like a, a pretend love affair but he would convince her that he was in love with her and then he would say that he was being threatened and um, he was being threatened with death and, uh, and maybe some of his own gang members would rough him up a bit to convince the girlfriend that was he was in danger and then uh, he would say well maybe you could help by earning some money by going into prostitution just sleep with two or three men and earn a bit of money and then it would get me out of trouble but of course then she enters into a, a downward spiral where you know perhaps she gets addicted to heroin and and then be, just becomes a, a, a prostitute servicing you know a lot of a lot of men every day so it was a, quite a nasty trick that we used to deal with now, you, I mean, you would stand out. So, I mean, in terms of your work, you would have, obviously, would you have within the, the guys you worked with, undercover police within the triads, but what would your role be? Yes. Sort of raids. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of addresses, so once we get to uh, to raid an address, we had a, a location, we determine a time, we might send in some some of the local officers first to try and recce, you know, uh, reconnoiter the the area and check what the the state of play was with the with the premises. But actually, during the raid itself, obviously, I can I can then take part because we're entering a premises and we're carrying out a legal investigation. So, what kind of triad cases did you come across? Well, I think you you can run through the whole A to Z, Anne-Marie. Really, I mean, and was this 14K or Sun Yeon? Yeah, yeah, I think I think you've named, you've already named this. <laughs> Thank you, Anne Marie. You've named the two biggest ones already. Uh, yeah, Warsing War, yeah, Sun Yeon, uh, 14K. A lot of the stuff that I dealt with was quite fairly low level. You know, it was just sort of street gang related, where you know, it was sort of territories. So somebody would would be accused of trespassing on somebody else's territory. So it'd be interrelated with the, and, and somebody would cross a street, and then maybe there would be attacks. And what would the what would the weapon be? They used uh, some knives, but also the uh, choppers, and uh, very often it wasn't a case of trying to kill somebody, but it was a case of trying to wound or maim somebody. And uh, one of the nasty things you see is that the, the, they would aim the, the choppers or machetes at uh, the tendons, so they would go for the, the tendons in the legs and the arms, so it would disable their opponent. So the, the opponents rarely actually died, but you'd see some very nasty wounds and lots of blood. Did that phase you? I mean, did you sort of when you went home at night? Did it? Were you upset by it, or did you just treat it as a case and move on to the next one? I think it all depended, case by case. Fortunately, most of the time, I was able, I think, to switch off to, to try and detach myself a little bit. The worst part of it was if children were involved. If you see children involved, then it's very difficult. If I saw people on, a, for example, I had to go to the crematorium. I had to go to the mortuaries, and I had to, and I had to watch the dissection of, of people after a case had occurred, for exactly, particularly say a homicide case or something. That was very difficult because they're quite gruesome. They're not like the ones you see on television. They're a lot more, uh, a lot more gruesome, and that sometimes can stick in your mind for a very long time. So, if I had to go and watch a post mortem, then the first thing I would do afterwards would go home put all my clothes in a washing machine jump into the shower wash my hair and because it was it, the, the smell of of the uh, of, of that was quite nauseous yes i can imagine that that as you say cases involving children would have been very disturbing these young women who would be uh, in situations not of their own making but lull as you say lured into these situations where they are suddenly drug addicted or in prostitution or both but um situation with the drugs early 1980s and into the 80s when you're got the first years of your career and uh, or even into the 90s i remember coming here in 1993 working for a newspaper and it was all about heroin heroin seemed to be the the dominant drug yes that's right when i joined the most common drug that we came across was what was called number three heroin and that was fairly weak form of heroin. It was very often in granules. You'd find little straws of it or bags of it. And it looked a bit like coffee granules, but it was sort of grey colour. And the popular ways of, of taking that, of course, was either injection or the smoking the dragon, where it was burnt on a spoon and inhaled. But we didn't see so much of other types of narcotics. I mean, in my time, there wasn't much cocaine. Uh, there wasn't much methamphetamine. And, of course, opium, which had been popular many years before, was less common. Would you come across an opium den? Or what, what sort of... When you, when you were doing a drugs raid, what did it look like? So 
I did come across an opium divan or opium den once in my career, and I consider myself very fortunate because by the 80s it was already becoming extremely rare. And to find an opium pipe, for example, I mean, they were antiques. You know, they were they were something from the 19th century. So, so it was a sort of historical cultural experience. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very much so. Uh, and when uh, we got the report, in fact, it, the information said that the uh, opium den was in a uh, pig farm. So, of course, we turned up, and what did we find? A pig farm. <laughs> so it was like, okay, it looks like a pig farm. There are pigs. There are pig styes. Where, you know, where's the opium divan? And basically, what happened was, I looked around and I saw one of the pig styes that actually looked different from all the others. And I, I saw that there was a sort of a, a black curtain covering. And I went down onto my hands and knees, pulled back the curtain crept inside and realised uh, straight away from the smell that that was an area that had been converted into a, a makeshift opium diamond. So it had cushions and carpets and I found the opium, I found the, the pipe and of course the thing about opium is it's normally a black sticky substance, a bit like tar and uh, it was a little plastic bag about the size of a golf ball and uh, this would be something that they would pull off and put into the pipe and smoke and it was a very very little comfortable area I had a feeling of elation because it was so rare it was so unusual to find something like that so I got quite excited but I did feel sorry for the chap that was smoking it because he was probably about 70 and when we arrested him poor chap he pulled out a battered old laminated piece of paper sort of brown and curling at the edges and it was a license to smoke opium and it was I think dating back from the 1930s or 40s so he was a long-term opium addict and I know when he went uh, before the magistrates court the magistrates gave him an extremely lenient sentence I, I think it was a very small fine and a sort of don't do it again and that was it uh, but of course we seized the opium we seized the pipe and uh, it was a, an interesting case so would you have said that that was probably one of the last sort of situations like that I mean in terms of when I think of heroin which is largely of course from TV or from newspaper mm. photographs it's it's the white powder mm. so how do you go from you know something that looks like sticky tar because surely it's the the opium flower is it's it's the or poppy is the source for all of it yes that's right so when we were when or when i was working in in the police uh, number 3 heroin was the, the the most popular drug and as i said that was rather crude it wasn't particularly strong it had a low purity low level of purity now it tends to be the, the white powder as you say and that was what we used to call number four heroin and that's a more refined and more pure version so it has a much higher percentage of purity hence it's much stronger one thing that's been largely forgotten about in Hong Kong now was that when the number three heroin was starting to be phased out and number four heroin was introduced, the traditional drug addicts were taking it in exactly the same way and a lot of them died because they weren't used to the, the purity of the heroin and they took it in exactly the same dosage, not realising it was far stronger and uh, uh, lots of them actually there were, there were heroin addicts that were found in the street at that time it wasn't something that was widely publicized it wasn't something that was really covered by the media but uh, there were quite a few people that and it was basically uh, ODs it was accidental overdoses 
I'm talking with Simon Roberts, who has written the book Hong Kong Beat about his life in the police force. Simon Roberts joined the police force in 1979 at the age of 21. And uh, he wasn't the first in his family to Asia. He has a great grandfather who first came to Afghanistan and India. But were you the first to come to Hong Kong? Uh, yes, I was. Yes, I was. And I came from a family that, apart from my great-grandfather, hadn't really travelled at all. Uh, I, when I was uh, growing up, I never travelled. My parents never went overseas on holiday. The reason, really, I, I think back now to those days and, you know, why from, a, from Shropshire did I come out all the way out to Hong Kong? But there was a television programme in uh, around 1978 called Hong Kong Beat. So, hence my book title. And uh, it was a BBC TV series, which I used to watch every week. I was absolutely fascinated by it. And it showed the, uh, the British police inspectors uh, dealing with all of these exciting cases in Hong Kong. Did it have really like wah-wah guitar? Yes, it, the theme music's superb. I'd recommend anybody to, to listen to the theme music to Hong Kong Beat. It's still on YouTube, I think. very uh, sort of romantic soundtrack and uh, it was something that I was just addicted to I watch it every week and I think maybe it probably went into my psyche and then uh, about a year later I actually saw an advert in the uh, newspaper on the Sunday paper saying uh, be a leader be an inspector in the Royal Hong Kong Police and I thought yes that's what I'm going to do and so when it was Hong Kong beat I mean did they were they running around the streets of Mong Kok were they on bicycles uh, well, they, they were, the, the series covered the marine police, uh, they covered the illegal immigration problem, uh, mm. they covered a lot of the, the EU, the emergency unit, because obviously what they wanted was, you know, they wanted exciting, sensational cases. So the emergency unit, which is the 999 response team, they followed those around in Kowloon and, and Hong Kong and uh, basically took the cameras in, you know, into all the buildings and so on. So, I mean, it was quite gritty. It was a very interesting and exciting case. And in fact, some episodes are still available on YouTube. And was it the BBC who did it, or somebody local in Hong Kong? It was the BBC. Really? It was a BBC TV series that was shown every week. It was shown in the days before DVDs and VCRs and iPlayer, so you had to actually be at home at 9 o'clock on a Thursday evening watching BBC Two to, to actually watch the TV series. If not, you, you missed it. <laughs> now, you also had a bit of a career in television. Well, uh, when I was uh, in, in Hong Kong, there was a programme called, it was Police Report, uh, and I think that was an RTHK production, and they were looking for new presenters, and uh, so I thought I would apply, and I did a screen test in Kowloon Tong. I then was able to, uh, to present the Police Report programme for a, a number of episodes, mostly as a stand-in. There was a, another regular presenter, but when he was off uh, on leave and things like that, uh, then I, I would stand in. Uh, so these were ongoing cases? Yeah, so they was, those were live cases that we were asking the public for help with. So was that live or pre-recorded? It was pre-recorded, but I did appear uh, live on one or two occasions, in particular I was a officer at the scene of the largest ever 
bank robbery in Hong Kong history, which happened in uh, the old Kai Tak Airport. And I think it was a 120 million Hong Kong dollar heist from Guard Force security van. Oh, think- gosh, let's go from the beginning. So, what, so tell me what happened. So basically, a lot of people will remember a notorious character called Big Spender who um, was uh, responsible for kidnapping uh, a number of famous people and uh, he was uh, famously also photographed in a street, I think it was quite near to here, uh, Anne-Marie in Mong Kok, where he was standing in the middle of the street with his legs apart, brandishing an AK-47. Yes. And uh, it caused a lot of uh, a lot of problems for us at the time because it was banks and jewellery, wasn't it? Banks and jewellery shops. He had a w- very uh, well-trained, well-armed gang. The, uh, uh, and, of course... Where, with the, the police force armed with Colts and Smith & Wesson revolvers with six rounds facing a chap with an AK-47 firing 600 rounds a minute. It's not something that uh, m- many of us were, were very keen to do. So he, he was, a, was quite successful using overwhelming force with robberies. Then he uh, was responsible for a number of kidnappings. So was he running gangs? Yeah, so Cheng Shi Kang, otherwise known as a big spender, uh, was a mastermind of a, of a gang responsible for arms smuggling, murder, robbery and kidnapping. Famously kidnapped the uh, uh, family members of uh, some of the major businessmen in Hong Kong. I think Victor Lee, I think, was one of them. He was also very famous in the media because he was photographed brandishing an AK-47 in the middle of a street in Kowloon. And was he from the mainland or here? I think he was originally from the mainland, but I I know that the period in the sort of in the 80s he he, he was a huge problem for for Hong Kong police and um, I think he was heading back into into China and eventually the representation was made to the mainland to also step up investigations into him. But in the case that I dealt with, it was a uh, guard force robbery at uh, the old Kai Tak airport and the money belonged to the Bank of New York and uh, it was on its way to an aircraft where it was going to be flown to America. It was hijacked by Big Spender's gang. Uh, the, uh, the guards were overpowered and the money was stolen. I happened to be an acting superintendent in the local division at the time and was called to the scene. And uh, to uh, your earlier question about live TV, I was then asked to speak to the media. And, of course, what I hadn't realised was at the time that suddenly I'd face the glare of uh, the cameras, the lights and the, and, and the microphones. It was, a, it was an interesting case, but it was linked to Zheng Chi Kung and, the, you say, the big spenders gang. So what happened with this guard? For, I mean, they, they got away or...? They did, and that in that particular case, there were arrests made, and I think he was actually arrested at one point, but got off. So he ends up in the mainland. So what happened to him in the end? From what I understand, Anne-Marie, the Chinese government then started taking this a lot more seriously and were working collaboratively with the Hong Kong government at that time, and the two police forces started uh, exchanging intelligence. There was an address in China that was linked to him, uh, where he was believed to be hiding out with a very well-armed gang. And I understand that there was a special operation from uh, Chinese uh, special forces, almost like you know, the, the elite police forces went in. There was a gunfight, there were several people killed. I understand that Zheng uh, Jikung, big spender, was arrested. So he wasn't killed during the raid, but then he was tried in China. And uh, from what I heard, he was uh, convicted and then executed by firing squad. Yes, and finally, as you say, he was executed in 1998. I'm talking with Simon Roberts, and we're sitting in this very nice park, actually, with a banyan tree in front of us, uh, just off Shanghai Street in Mong Kok, which was one of your areas, Simon, yes, along yes. with Chaipo earlier 
in your career. Now, you also, so we've talked about pipe bombs very early in your career at a, at a betting centre, also as this infamous gangster. But uh, were you also involved with homicides? Yeah, so after I went into the uh, district crime squad, I moved around a, a few different uh, districts, but I spent a lot of time here in Kowloon, as I said, in, in Mong Kok, and also in uh, Sao Mao Ping. And when I was in the district crime squad in uh, Sao Mao Ping, that covered Alto Kok division as well, and it also covered the old Kai Tak camp, which was then housing the Vietnamese refugees, the Vietnamese boat people. And this was when we still had an open camp policy. So with certain restrictions, the Vietnamese residents of the camp could move in and out. So they could actually go in and out of the camp and they could move around the, the territory as well. The uh, problem was that there was uh, one very nasty individual called Pham Vang Ngoc and he was responsible for running all the prostitution and, and gambling rings in, in the camp. He was a feared character. All the other Vietnamese were terrified of him. And the interesting thing was that uh, I used to have to go into the camp with my team and generally the living conditions were pretty basic, as you can imagine. However, the head of the, um, uh, from the UNHCR, uh, the, the head of the camp said, look, I'll show you into uh, Pham's quarters and where he's staying. So we went into Pham's room and I was absolutely astounded. It had wallpaper, carpet, huge uh, sort of double bed, almost like a four-poster bed. It was quite luxurious and uh, it was obvious that he was, he was doing very well out of all his uh, scams and, uh, and, and gang activity. He had been involved with some, some cases that we were aware of. There were, had been homicides that he'd been linked with and he'd never been convicted. And then whilst I was responsible for District Crime Squad, it was Chinese New Year, Chinese New Year Eve, and I got a call to go into the camp. There'd been a murder. And I, I went into the camp with my team. Of course, my team were very disgruntled because it was Chinese New Year and it was the last thing they wanted. They, they wanted to spend time with their families. But we went in and conducted the investigation. And again, the same name we were hearing, Pham Vang Ngoc, was responsible. But of course, we, it was very difficult to find any evidence. The person that had died had been killed in a very interesting way, uh, which was difficult to ascertain at the time. But he, apparently, the, the victim, had been in uh, a room gambling with Pham and some of his gang members. And this individual had got drunk, and, and he was a big chap, actually. He was a big, tanned, muscular bloke. He'd had an argument with Pham and the team over the gambling and because he'd lost some money and he thought he was being cheated. So he'd, he'd got very angry and, and almost like had a bit of a fight and big, big arguments. And, of course, then the, the gang had threatened him and he'd run out and the gang had chased him. Now, at the time, we weren't sure how he'd been killed because when we got to the mortuary the next morning, I slept in my office that night in a sleeping bag on the floor and then uh, went to the mortuary at 9 o'clock the next morning, having worked all night on the investigation. And when he was on the slab, we looked at him and the body was still warm and... Uh, he looked as if he was still alive, as if he was still breathing. It was, it was very strange. And there didn't seem to be really any, many injuries on his body. There were a few little pink sort of small marks on his body, but nothing else. And during the post-mortem, the pathologist made some incisions and it was, it was pretty gruesome because he'd, he'd obviously, without going into too many details, drunk a lot of San Miguel beer 
and eaten a lot of rice congee the day before because that in, most of that ended up on the floor. So uh, uh, my shoes didn't look very good uh, a little bit later on that day. But during the, uh, the post-mortem itself, the, even the pathologist was a little bit uh, confused as to how uh, this chap had, had died. It turned out that the little puncture marks on his body had been caused by very thin aluminium water pipe lances about one centimetre in diameter, which had been sharpened to a blade like a razor blade. And he'd been run through, almost medieval style, by these one-metre-long lances. So they'd all picked up these uh, one-metre-long water pipes, which had a very, very sharp, razor-sharp end, and they'd caught him and, and they'd run him through. So when you actually saw the body, there was very little to see. But when you actually examined internally, all of his internal organs, his lungs, his spleen, his liver, had all been punctured. So he'd, he'd suffered incredible uh, internal damage to his internal organs, and that was the cause of death. Oh, pretty gruesome stuff, and apologies if you were eating during any of that. Simon Roberts there, talking about some of his experiences during a 22-year career with the Hong Kong police, where he began in 1979. Simon Roberts has written a book about his time in the force called Hong Kong Beat. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.